Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast today on the pod. We look at how Canada's boom in international students is linked to just a handful of colleges. And taxes, taxes, taxes. We now have a flipping, speculation, empty homes, and overseas buyers' taxes. Is any of it making any real difference when it comes to addressing our housing challenges? And who needs luggage? We look at why WestJet and other American airlines have hiked their check bag charges. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. We spent a lot of time in the last uh, couple of months talking about uh, international students uh, and uh, Immigration Minister Mark Miller, who's been on this show many a time, today said that Ottawa is ready to step in and shut down shady schools that are abusing the international student program if provinces don't uh, crack down. Uh, Miller did say there are problems across the college sector, but some of the worst offenders are private institutions and those schools need to go. But also when you look through the list, there are a lot of uh, private schools, of course, but there's also a lot of public colleges that rely upon uh, the international students as well. A reminder, of course, that more than 900,000 foreign students had visas to study in Canada last year, which is more than three times the number a decade ago. Just yesterday, we were talking to uh, the head of the Victoria Chamber of Commerce, who said we should be building more student housing, but those international students um, that uh, study in our schools are vital, uh, not only just for Canada over the long term with an aging society, but also for many businesses as well. And they're actually advocating for more student housing um, uh, to be built. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this issue is Richard Curland. He's an immigration lawyer and a policy analyst right here in Vancouver. Richard, thank you for joining us. A pleasure. Now, recently I had the Prime Minister and he gave me a rather lengthy answer in regards to why (laughs) we had this problem. Uh, And, you know, part of it was it's COVID and we didn't have any immigration and so we were playing catch up. But I had to remind him after his rather lengthy answer, it still happened on your watch. Uh, And my question to you is, uh, we've we've gotten into this mess. Who do you blame for this? Is it Ottawa uh, not watching what was happening? The colleges, public or private, who weren't, uh, who were just letting anybody in, let's be honest. How would you, what's your assessment of, of this mess? Oh, it's real simple. It's, it's out of Ottawa. The Privy Council Office made the strategic decision to increase Canada's population size. Politically, they could not, three, four years ago, say we're going to significantly boost immigrants because there's a political price for that. And they're under an obligation every year to disclose how many permanent residents are coming in. But guess what? There's no equivalent obligation when it comes to temporary status people. Mm -hmm. No caps, no reporting. So in the space of three, four years, they increase the size of Canada's population by literally millions Mm -hmm. Under political radar, and they just kind of forgot to tell the housing industry uh, and and a lot of the schools that that was their intent. So when the prime minister told you uh, half the story, it was just that, half the story. Ottawa knew, they planned it, they did it, and now they're, they're caught. So in your mind, what do you think they know 
that we don't in regards to our job market moving forward. Mm. Beyond, we have an aging society. I get all that. We have bills today. We need young people. The longer they're here, the more they're going to pay into our tax system. I get all that. But what yeah. do you think the specifics number, numbers tell them? That Tell them, let's pull a fast one on them and, and bring in more international <laughs> suits. Like, what, what data do you think they're looking at that says, let's come to this conclusion, let's go do this? Well, it, it's it's pure. Someone's got to pay for our uh, medical system. Someone's got to pay for our pensions, and that's got to be uh, the younger people. We can harvest human capital from other countries without paying. The people coming here have been educated in other countries, not our dime. It's a clever move, but kind of just be upfront with it. Uh, so, where do we go next? To, to control this uh, overnight after doubling, <laughs> Ottawa says, okay, we doubled it. Now we'll reduce by about 35% the total number of these uh, study permits. Mm, big deal, a little uh, late. But nevertheless, the demand for a Canadian study permit has not decreased. The supply of those permits have decreased. So we're in actually a gosh darn good position. We can make rules like... You can't come to this country to study unless you can afford to. And unless you can afford to be here without working, harvest the wealthy and educated. It's good for us. Does this not also lay bare that our entire uh, system when it comes to post-secondary institutions is structurally just uh, just yeah. it, it's it's a mess that we are relying still on international wow. students ultimately to fund our our public uh, system here because I know I think it was in Ontario yeah. last year international students were actually were on the verge of putting more money into the system than the Ontario government. You just nailed it, bullseye. So uh, it, it is about money. If if the provinces do not want to uh, finance the educational institutions with taxpayer dollars uh, to the levels that are appropriate, the the school's got to get it from somewhere. And no surprise when the only choice is to add foreign students. You're making about $20,000 a student, and uh, there's an awful lot of foreign students. So, uh, again, uh, the, uh, the, the government, big government, uh, left uh, no choice uh, for those schools. They had to collect money uh, in order to subsidize their uh, existing program. The benefit is that foreign students were subsidizing Canadian student education. Uh, University of Victoria announced cuts of $13 million, uh, about mm. 4% of their operating budget. Uh, do you expect to see more of these high-profile announcements uh, in Ontario and, and, and British Columbia as oh. more of the numbers and the reality hit our, uh, our uh, oh. educational institutions? <laughs> in the last week or so, the panic button has been hard-pressed by the schools. They now have to look for money. They see, how do we get these study permits? There's no transparent rules. It could be like in Ontario, that land bank, it, what counts is who you know in the provincial government. Well, that's no way to run a railroad. So um, some, some quick thinking can be done to make this a win-win-win for everyone. You can tie uh, a school's quota for study permits, which now exists as of the last couple of weeks. The, the provinces give individual schools, they have the power to do this, quotas 
for study permits. And to get the same quota next year, be a good school. Make sure the students show up, pass, do well, and add into that soup plans that the school has to increase housing supply for students to ensure a campus is safe and secure for all students. If you check all those boxes, you get foreign money, big time. And we've effectively privatized, hive off to the private sector enforcement of the immigration program by doing this. The schools want money. Mm -hmm. They'll be motivated uh, and do what's required to get their quota. So I think this is going to have an excellent outcome. There will be short-term panic in Ontario and parts of BC when schools need to uh, get some sort of blessing from Victoria on next year's study permit quota. But when the dust settles, I think we win. We will take in wealthy students who do not have to work in Canada to study. The schools will get their money and the taxpayer wins because the enforcement of our immigration program will be pushed down onto the schools. The schools being highly motivated to pick the brightest, the best, the best performing and people who comply with our immigration laws. Richard, so thank you for your time. A pleasure and an honor. Thank you. (laughs) BC's Premier David Eby says the proposed uh, house flipping tax uh, that would uh, basically add a 20% tax on property sold within a year of purchase is not a cure-all to the province's housing woes. Uh, He was speaking to reporters uh, the other day about the issue. Uh, Take a listen to his comments. It used to be the case that if you worked hard, if you followed the rules uh, and uh, and, uh, you put in your time, you'd be able to afford a good place to live. You'd be able to uh, build a life for yourself and your family. Well, uh, that uh, contract was broken with people by governments that neglected to make sure that we were building and delivering housing that the middle class could actually afford. Government has to be involved in that work. And when government abandoned that, that meant that the speculators were able to move in. uh, To drive up prices, to turn housing into an investment instead of a place to live. Uh, that's Premier David Eby. I think not only just talking about the middle class, but I think it's a broader and deeper conversation about generational unfairness. The Premier said about, you know, if you worked hard, you know, if you did the right things, generally speaking, you're going to be able to get into the housing market and and, and lead a productive, happy life. Uh, but somewhere along the way, that, that generational deal was broken. Uh, generational unfairness in some cases uh, as well. I, and I, one of the reasons I wanted to, to do this segment was I want to talk about not only just the, the flipping tax, but we have the flipping tax, the speculation tax, the empty homes tax, the overseas buyers tax. Is it making a difference in addressing our housing challenges? Joining me now to talk a little bit about all of this is Paul Kershaw. He's a policy professor at UBC School of Population and Public Health and founder of Generation Squeeze. Paul, welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, you were at, uh, I believe, the budget lockup. Uh, Your take on this government's approach to the housing challenge, not just the, the flipping tax, but some of these other taxes that I've just mentioned. Yeah, and I'll take it one one step above, you know, just talk of taxes for the moment. I was struck that this provincial budget for the first time really acknowledged that generational tension that you, you that you featured in, in the introduction, that they're wanting to acknowledge that uh, a younger demographic 
is not having its hard work pay off like it used to. And, and housing's at the center of that. Housing has left our earnings behind. And as a result, you know, somebody like me, I've gained wealth in my home, like a, oh, a million and a half dollars in my home over the last couple of decades. But someone just as smart as me, just as hardworking as me, but happened to be younger than me, is now locked out of housing where I live and at least home ownership and increasingly out of renting for any affordable rate. Mm-hmm. So I think that I think that the, this provincial budget get, uh, articulates that problem better than any provincial budget I have been able to attend in the last 15 years. And now it's the question is like, where to from here to tackle the next big challenges? Mm-hmm. And do you think the cumulative, cumulative announcements when it comes to all these policies, which I've talked about, the speculation tax, the empty homes tax, the overseas buyers tax, the flipping tax, uh, BC builds, uh, which was just announced in regards to building on uh, public lands, add to that uh, some of the housing legislation that was introduced in the last fall uh, session, do you think uh, this will actually have the impact that everybody feels we the need the fee will this have the yeah. impact that we we want to see I, I would observe that we now have better housing policy uh under premier Ivy than we had previously in the province so good on that i am excited about the progress we're making i think that there's you know especially heading into a, the next election i i hear premier Ivy the way he's framing it is like you know speculators and investors and bad actors have kind of been screwing up our housing system and, and I get why he frames it that way, because like, then we can be angry at some like, other person over there. I think one of the challenges, and I said this on you know, your radio program in the past, that I don't think I'm a speculator. I'm not an investor. I don't think I'm a bad actor. But I live in a home that has benefited from rising values. I've gained a lot of equity. And, and I think that you know, everyone's wanting the next thing, the flipping tax or whatever next tax or whatever next home we're going to build. And like, now everything's going to be affordable. But our challenge is, we lost all that affordability over the last couple of decades. It made me better off, but it's made others following in our footsteps worse off. And that means how do we ask those of us who benefited to like lean and think about how are we part of the solution? You know, kind of like how are we going to kindly be part of the solution and not just on the sidelines saying, I'm sorry, there's all this collateral damage for you from what's benefited me. Yeah. And I think I don't hear that quite yet. Um, in in the provincial discourse, but I hear Premier be hinting at it more than I've heard other politicians. Uh, I, I remember uh, as an MLA, somebody brought up the same topic with me, and I said, if you can find a good way for me to say, hey, baby boomer, I, uh, under the guise of, of affordability, let me destroy 35% of your home equity for you, and please yes. re-elect so me. That's so not, that's not going to happen, that's and not I don't even ha- think... I don't think our economy wants prices to crater to that degree. No. I think, though, let me use that as a segue to another really interesting feature of the budget. So if you look at the strategic plan in the budget, it has an honest, hard truth message for the aging baby boomers who we love in our lives. And and this is in regards to medical care. And, And it talks about how, like, continuing to provide high quality medical care in this province is the fastest growing part of the budget. And, and then it says it, if you won't mind, I'll quote it. It says, you know, in the 1970s, there were seven working age adults for every retiree. Now there are only three. That made it easier in decades past for the province to cover the medical care costs of our aging loved ones. And I'm like, wow, I haven't seen that kind of honesty in a provincial budget in BC or across the country before. And I, you know, it might be because millennials now are actually the bigger generation. I think it's actually because just the scale of the challenge of an investing in the medical care for our aging population that previous governments didn't plan well for is now so large that 
is there, there needs to be this more honest conversation with boomers. And so whether we're talking about housing unaffordability or the fiscal pressures that governments are facing, our aging family members are kind of front and center in this conversation. And, and I see this budget with honesty and humility kind of reaching out and saying, we need to lean in together to figure out how to make this work for our aging family members, but not at the expense of your kids and grandchildren, which has too much, too often been the trade-off in previous government budgets. So uh, let's continue with this conversation. So if the, the, the homeowner or the baby boomer has to pay a little bit more, where would that come from? We, we got all the speculation tax, we got the overseas buyer's tax, got all these taxes. So is the next thing eliminate the homeowner's grant? Uh, perhaps if people want to buy into the market, our guests getting into the market, uh, reduce as much as you possibly can the, the property purchase tax, or eliminate that or reduce that in some way. Yeah. I mean, are these is this the next level of conversation we need to be having? And like I said, the homeowner's grant, for those who own $2 million, $3 million properties, whatever, you know, the average home in, in, in the lower mainland, let's say you've been able to get in, you've been lucky, it's good politics, the homeowner's grant. Bad policy, most people would argue, if you follow it closely. Is this where we need to be going, though, talking about these types of programs that have just been part of our culture? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think you could also consider adding some progressivity to the tax rates on property taxation. I think we need to acknowledge that when you're running a $7.9 billion deficit when we're not in a recession, you're running into a structural problem. If this is not just an NDP issue, although I am concerned about the next three years of deficits that will make the, the, the debt servicing charges grow to a degree that we're spending more on that than we're spending on childcare and housing combined. Yeah. But this is a problem that the NDP have inherited from previous governments back in the day saying, you know what, we can punt the problem of the aging boomers down the road. Well, the road, the end of the road has come and the problem is here. And so we need to recognize we have a revenue resiliency problem. And I feel like for, you know, our deputy finance minister, like who has to sort of grapple not only with the political reality, but the fiscal reality of like, wow, we got a structural problem. And the politics of the day, citizens are often heading into elections saying, hey, promise me more stuff to fix the problems I'm concerned about. But this budget seems to suggest, hey, we don't think uh, our voters are ready yet to have a serious conversation about how to pay for what we want. Mm -hmm. And I think we really need affluent boomers. And I say affluent boomers in particular, if there's some baby boomers who aren't, you know, are are struggling with rent, uh, just like others are, other younger folks. But there's a group, I'm not quite there, I'm a Gen Xer, but there's people like me and older than me who are doing better. We have to be part of the conversation that says, no matter which government wins the next election, they got a structural deficit problem. How are we going to help them overcome that in a way that protects the income security medical care I want as an older person, but also protects the legacy I'm leaving for my kids and grandchildren and recognizes that their dream of having a secure home is increasingly out of reach for what hard work can earn. So I just want to get to the brass tax. You still think we should be increasing property taxes for those of a certain income, that, uh, that obviously can afford their homes and have been there for, for decades. You also believe that we need to be looking at homeowners' grants, eliminating them for a certain part of the population uh, who are comfortable and have paid off their homes. They really don't need a homeowners' grant in your mind. Something yeah, like that. I, you know, I talk less often about the homeowners' grant. I, I want to have like a conversation about rationalizing our revenue rates. I want a tax shift. I actually I wish people would talk more about I want to reduce taxes on renters and middle and lower earners. And then I want to compensate for that by, you know, talking about how do we raise more tax uh, from, you know, high value homes. I think that's an efficient 
uh, tax shift for our economy. I think there's a fair tax shift between young and old and actually affluent and less affluent. I could be convinced of any of a range of tax policy changes. I want us to have the conversation and I'll, you know, I'll land where, you know, a reasonable group of people converge and say, we think this is the best trade-off. Maybe they don't like my particular proposal. Fine. But we need that conversation and we need to enable our politicians. I don't care who you, which one you support, which party you support, but we need to make it possible for them to not only talk about new spending, but how to raise revenue to pay for it. We've lost that in British Columbia and across the country to some degree. And I suspect even talking taxes today will get me angry emails where, you know, we used to joke is death and taxes. It's the only two things that are inevitable in life. But now when I talk taxes, I'm likely to get people saying, I wish you would die. Just shut the hell up. <laughs> and I think we need to not have such vitriol so we can talk seriously about the public policy challenges facing us with these structural deficits. Well, Paul, there are tough questions to ask, and I appreciate you asking uh, because it is part of our broader conversation we, uh, that we do need to have. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Have a great day. Welcome back to the show. What you're listening to there is a Wendy's training video uh, from uh, early 2000s. Uh, the company's been around for a very long time, uh, since uh, 1969. The first Wendy's opened in Columbus, Ohio, uh, and then since then, of course, has expanded throughout North America. Joining me now is our show contributor, Jerry Merritt Judson, to talk a little bit about Wendy's and this announcement their CEO just made. Yes, uh, Kirk Tanner, earlier this month, he said that uh, they're going to introduce dynamic pricing, or as we may know it, surge pricing, (laughs) right? It's the same. You've seen it with ride-sharing apps. It's the whole principle is price goes up when the demand goes up. So same as trying to catch an Uber during a rush hour or during a concert. If you try to go get a Baconator at (laughs) dinnertime, it might cost you, as early as 2025, at least in the United States of America, it's going to cost you a little bit more, maybe. So I was on the ride-hailing committee when we, we debated surge pricing, and one one reason it was allowed is that you want to have uh, more more drivers at that time. Sure, yeah, that incentivizes right? the drivers to go make more money, exactly. and then it goes back down. You know, Canucks games letting out, surge pricing is going to come because there's going to be thousands of people, so you got more people who will work at that time. Uh, this is surge pricing. I'm going to assume they're more quieter times. Is that going to, yes. how it's going to work? As well, yeah. So it goes both ways. Just as Ubers are cheaper on a random Wednesday at 11 in the morning, probably, you know, your Baconator might be a little bit cheaper if you go in at on a, at a random off time. If you just really need a three o'clock pick me up or something on a weekday and you go to Wendy's, then you might see a little bit less. And so I guess the thing here is to offer deals to try to get uh, get traction on, on slower times. Um, even it might be influenced by the weather. If you need to go get a frosty in a blizzard, it might be cheaper for in you. In the middle of the snow. Exactly, like right? today, if you wanted to. Yeah, so prices will be <laughs> dropping right now. Exactly. So they can sell more things. And so okay. um, it might alleviate as well pressure on the kitchen during busier times if there is uh, maybe some drop so off. busy times would be obviously breakfast, lunch, dinner. Absolutely. Particularly lunch and dinner, but they're and trying to roll out more breakfast. Like, well, I was wondering if we served pricing post bar if you go oh you know? oh my gosh if there was a wendy's that was open and it was right next yeah. to a bar oh my Maybe when i was younger exactly right? oh yeah that's when it's bumping there was a there was a bar there was a fast food restaurant that i will not name right because just in case but right next to a bar back home and when i was 18 that was stop number two always if they had surge pricing i don't think i'd have enough money like today so it's an interesting choice yeah and i was reading also that they're starting to test ai chatbots 
in their at the drive-through in Columbus, hmm. Ohio, where they had where the first Wendy's uh, started, and they're saying that it, that they were bragging actually the CEO there as you were mentioning uh, that they didn't need any human intervention eighty six percent of the time. This is not a brag that I like at all. That's yeah. a little bit dystopian cyber future <laughs> saying we almost all of the time solid B plus uh, for not needing actual human people, but then that is. Uh, that's job creation because it does like it works in tandem with a person. It's kind of like a self checkout situation. It's yeah, weird. They have they called it AI. They also have AI enabled menu changes and okay. suggestive selling. So it'd be quote. It's 11 p.m. and I know you're just here for a frosty before bed. We noticed a lot of people cut the lettuce on the spicy chicken sandwich. Would you like that too? Question mark. Interesting. Okay. So it's it's huh. So you know one of the oh, fast no. fast like, <laughs> no fast food restaurants. You know we, we we have fun with them sometimes, but. At one time, there was a stat I was looking at. It was like almost 6 or 8% of the U.S. workforce at some time in their life, predominantly when they're kids, worked at a fast food outlet. So yeah, first sure. job, all that sort of thing, yeah. right? Uh, and so if these AI chatbots are doing this already through drive through that's less and less jobs for people. Absolutely. Right? Where, especially students. Yeah, especially students. Where are you supposed to make you know your coffee money when you're in school? And also, where are you supposed to get that first bit of job experience on your resume? Yeah. This is it's a, this is frightening. I'm not too sure. Like like I don't know. I will I feel like uh, I don't know. It's creepy to it me. It is creepy. Would you would you go? Like would you would 100% you buy into jazz? It? <laughs> snowing out and I wanted a frosty and they were a dollar if I got like a push notification on my phone like They'll Jerry they will be like frosties are a dollar I'd be like absolutely I'm putting on my parka and I will go and I will save that money I'm looking at the Wendy's menu here right now and I'm thinking I'm like if some of these but items if were... Wendy's does this and they're successful let's, yeah. let's, let's go down further down the road for a second McDonald's will do the same thing mm-hmm. and they'll do push no- mm-hmm. notifications through their app right mm-hmm. so what's to stop someone like Starbucks and saying okay it's two in the afternoon it's a bit quiet on a Saturday. They already, afternoon. they basically do that too. They had for a little bit, they had a happy hour at Starbucks for one week to order these kinds of, through the app, it was order these kinds of drinks and you can save 30% or something like that. So they're already doing these things. I'm already influenced and I have, I have no peace from suggestive selling. This is turning into Black Mirror a little bit for me. That is absolutely just dystopian it really it is. is it is dystopian it's it's weird techno future but uh i just i don't know maybe maybe in 2025 but again we up in the great white north we are safe uh for now because in 2025 we'll do it in the u.s but there's seepage for every fast oh, food decision a, yeah this is just a start i mean if it's working in the u.s they're going to come to canada and if it works for wendy's it's going to work for burger king it's going to work for mcdonald's it'll work for starbucks and and, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know, we're probably going to have robots preparing our Subway sandwiches eventually, too. So. Oh, if they te- they better tessellate that cheese. <laughs> they better make it fit nicely. Although I will say, too, uh, the shares for Wendy's uh, fell slightly this morning. So I don't know how the public feels about this decision. Really? The financial analysts didn't buy the yeah. surge price? And they're like, hold on. <laughs> I don't know. Now people are trying to jettison the Wendy's stock. Not dramatically, but maybe. It's, well, uh, it's a risk. Well, from June 11th to uh, July 19th in 2026, Vancouver will be uh, home to FIFA World Club. 
uh, will be uh, a host to seven games here in our province. Uh, and if you're a soccer fan, it's going to be an amazing, amazing time. Uh, and of course, those games will be held uh, in the United States and in Mexico as well. But as we get closer, you'd want a sort of sense of what we're going to be spending uh, on those games. Well, guess what? Uh, this last provincial budget uh, didn't have much to say in regards to the money that you as a taxpayer will be doling out in preparation for uh, FIFA 2026. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the uh, missing numbers for this this year's BC budget when it comes to the 2026 FIFA World Cup is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Hello, Richard. Hey, Jazz. Thanks for having me. Uh, why, uh, in your mind, do we not see any specific numbers when it comes to FIFA World Cup in Vancouver? Oh, man, that is the big question. So I think part of it is the province was waiting to get the schedule and BC ended up getting more games than expected. So the thought was originally the Vancouver would get five games. Mm-hmm. There have been seven games. But beyond that, it's unclear to me why we have almost no details First off, in terms of what FIFA has asked for from Vancouver, so we beat out Edmonton for the bid, and we don't even know why we beat them out and what FIFA or the bid committee said at the time in terms of what we would be providing. And then on top of that, we don't know how much it will cost to upgrade BC Place, to provide security, uh, and for all the extra goodies, we don't even know if FIFA has asked about. And the other reason why this is such an important thing to discuss right now is the City of Toronto released a budget yesterday they are hosting fewer games than we are at six and we know that it's going to cost 380 million dollars that's up from a projected 300 million dollars just a few years ago and you know if we're hosting more games we don't know how much it's going to cost we may end up with a price tag you know in the 300 million dollar range if not in the 400 million dollar range after the last concrete number given out in this province was 250 million dollars that is a giant jump and yes there's going to be economic benefit here the tourism organizations in Vancouver project it's going to be a billion dollars in economic activity in the year of the world's cup in the 5 years after that we are going to have hundreds of thousands of visitors come to town because of the world's cup but i think taxpayers deserve to know what is it going to cost to get all these people to town so you're saying uh, toronto went from initial budget of 300 million for six games to 380 million we're at 250 million initially but let's go through some of the challenges here first there's going to be security it's a global event uh, and there's always security challenges there maybe the feds will throw in some money or maybe it's bc's responsibility i don't know you raise the issue upgrading bc place uh and that the major cost there is the field because it has to be natural turf that's one of the costs. The bigger costs are some of the infrastructure costs required around BC Place. So right now, the ramps at BC Place are not graded uh, to ensure accessibility in the building. The grade is too steep. So they need to level out the grading of the ramps at BC Place to ensure accessibility. They need to ensure that there are separate entrances, including one to the Park Hotel complex that acts as a new grand entrance. They need to upgrade the elevators. They need to upgrade the suites. All of that comes with a substantial cost. Some of it comes with long-term benefit for BC Place. Of course, a facility of that size and scope should be more accessible uh, to those that are using wheelchairs and those that require 
uh, uh, have mobility devices. Uh, there's also the issue of the turf, as you described. There is a requirement for the World's Cup to be played on natural grass. My understanding is the province is working now on securing a way in order to do that in a cost-efficient way and also a way that will pass muster uh, by FIFA for the World Cup field standards. All of those things compounded come with costs. You mentioned security is part of it as well. There'll be other activations. It's not like the Olympics where we need to improve a highway or need to build a SkyTrain line, but there are going to be structural issues around Vancouver, potentially additional hotels or other spaces where teams will practice. That could be not just a Vancouver issue, but that could fall on other municipalities around Metro Vancouver or here on the island or potentially in the Okanagan, where there'll be an ask to build certain facilities so the teams could come here to North America practice and then get ready to gear up for once that world cup starts i just want to go back to one of the things you said the park hotel which is right next to bc place the axe there has to be an access from the park hotel right into bc place yeah so this is part of a larger and this is part um we found this out because pavco put out a request uh for proposals uh in order to do some of these upgrades and i think it was described in that document as a grand entrance uh but they also are ensuring in part because of accessibility but i think it's also linked to my assumption is that there will be uh visitors uh, potentially from fifa and major sponsors who will be staying and taking over that hotel and i think that's in part but again just we don't have the plans, right? We are just piecing this together based on little pieces of information. We don't know if FIFA demanded to the province in order to host. You have to make sure that there's a host hotel connected directly to a stadium with an entrance because none of those documents have been made public and available for us to understand and analyze. I think, like you said at the beginning, soccer fans are going to be excited. Seven games is amazing. Two Canadian games, incredible. Uh, uh, two playoff games, Jazz. Like, this is Huge. going to have the city on fire. Yeah. But, you know, what does all of that cost? And what did we commit to doing here? We're, we're on the schedule. This is happening. But we don't know what we committed to in order to ensure that it's happening. And I think that's where the big issue lies. So is th- is there any line item in the budget this year that says FIFA World <laughs> Cup costs? Like, you know, you go through a budget and you go, here's what finance, here's what a hospital is going to cost. Like you go through budgeting in, in the BC, with the BC government on budget day, which you've done many a time. I've done it as well. They will say, hey, we're building a new hospital in Terrace. Here's what we budgeted this year for the building of that uh, hospital. It literally say Terrace Memorial Hospital. Now, there has to be a, a lines item somewhere that says FIFA World Cup preparation. Is, is there not? There sure is. You're not going to believe it. So the budget is a three-year <laughs> oh, document. No. And 2026 is within three years. There is one mention of the 2026 FIFA World Cup in the budget. And it is tied to a line about contingencies. And you know what contingencies are? They are built in to pay for emergencies, largely in this province, fires and floods and atmospheric rivers. But somehow the province's budgeting department has decided that FIFA, an event we know about two years out, has been deemed an emergency because the only mention of the FIFA World Cup is under a line item that says, this year's budget, we've built in more than $3 billion in contingencies. And some of that is going to be for the 2026 Men's FIFA World Cup. It's sort of unbelievable to me. We have $10 billion in contingencies over three years. We know that this money will be spent in part for the NDP's re-election campaign, in large part due to emergencies, but that is not where money for FIFA should come from. Considering the scope of this event, this is going to be arguably 
the largest event we have held in our city. The Olympics was amazing. It was 17 days. It had multiple sport. Global eyes were on it. But this, the Men's World Cup, is the most viewed sporting event in the world. Yeah. And that should have the significance in the budget and beyond. And the fact that it wasn't even including the budget in terms of projections, just put a number, some sort of number, 250, 300 million, whatever you want to put there, put it there so we can at least understand where we're starting from here. Mm-hmm. They didn't do that. So, you know, okay, when I'm, when you give me that list, uh, you know, I, I kind of, okay, the natural turf thing, I understand that was part of the broader conversation. Uh, and, and okay, some upgrading to BC Place because it is an older stadium, although I think we put in $600 million before the uh, 2010 sure Olympics, did. right? Now, okay, the, the ramps, the, the grading of the ramps, okay, I'll give you that much. What I don't understand, maybe this is small in the grand scheme of things, we don't know what the security costs, but the upgrading of suites, upgrading of elevators, and then the separate park entrance, I'm going, well, that that those costs can grow pretty quickly. And outside of the Summer Olympics, you got Whitecaps games and BC, BC Lions games. I mean, do we really need to be spending that money upgrading suites? Like, do we need more suites? Is that what they're asking for? I don't know. I mean, yeah. that could grow. So- Yeah, we just don't know. And you forgot Taylor Swift and the Rolling Stones are coming. But, you know, there is pride in having an amazing world-class stadium in our city. And you did mention we spent hundreds of millions of dollars on this before the Olympics and post-Olympics to upgrade the roof and the seats and all of that. But I just keep coming back to the fact we don't know what FIFA is requiring. And is it you know, luxury seats so that the executives from Coca-Cola and Visa and FIFA, the sponsors and the organizers get to sit in luxury. I don't think that should be okay with taxpayers. If it's changes that allow us to ensure that we're accessible and that, you know, the elevators don't break down, I think everybody can agree on that. But if we're starting to do upgrades for billionaire executives and FIFA members and organizing committee members, that's not okay. And I think we need to understand specifically what the province wants to do and what FIFA requires the province to do. I think long-term benefits are good, but like you described, you know, we don't need to have a suite fit for the Sultane of Baran or something like that uh, when we have a BC Lions game. Right. No, so exactly. I, I, there needs to be an insurance that these changes are going to be ones that will benefit the province and having a great venue long term without having these sort of special features that often FIFA in the past has been notorious for requiring host cities to do. Richard, thank you. My pleasure as always, Jazz. Thanks for having me. It's that time of the year, perhaps, that uh, you're thinking about holidays for uh, spring break. If you're parents or perhaps even organizing your summer holidays, well, I've got some good news for you. Airfares have declined in Canada. While there's some bad news as well, uh, airlines are asking you to pay more when it comes to baggage fees. Joining me now to talk about the issue is Claire Newell, president and founder of Travel Best Bets. Claire, welcome. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Jazz. There's a lot going on at the moment in the world of travel. Yeah, I mean, you know, people are probably, you know, looking outside going, oh my God, we're still talking snow here in Vancouver potentially. And and uh, they're probably, you know, thinking about uh, summer holidays and planning and stuff like that. Uh, this just caught my eye. WestJet uh, and a few American airlines are going to start charging extra for check bags. What is going on with the industry? Yeah, well, this is interesting. Um, this doesn't surprise me because we take a look at as the industry as a whole worldwide and um, 
ancillary fees. Basically, that if you want the service fees, um, you pay more, have been going up. It started in Europe, and then we saw the U.S. Uh, carriers do this. I know that American and Alaska increase their baggage fees within recent months. And now WestJet is going to be charging an extra $5 for checked luggage for travel. And that actually began on Valentine's Day. Not much love, um, but it, it was effective as of February the 14th. And one of the other things that we're seeing is discount carrier Flair Airlines has raised some of their fees as well. And they've added a surcharge when customers pay for their flight with a credit card. But I have to say this, Jazz. Um, we are seeing lower base fares than we have seen since the pandemic, since restrictions started to ease. Um, so it's cheaper to go to many places than it's been. And Stats Can actually came up with numbers just last week saying that January 23 numbers compared to January 24 uh, prices, it's 14.3% down this year over the same time last year, which is good news. What I just want to remind people is, is that if you are looking at fares, whether it's a low-cost carrier or WestJet or any, any airline, always compare apples to apples before deciding on a flight. Because sometimes it's so shocking. I look at a, a cheap fare in Europe doing a quick hopper, like a, maybe an hour-long flight with, say, EasyJet or Ryanair or whatever, and the base fare might be, 29 euros, which sounds so great, and then the bag mm -hmm. is more. So yeah. you really have to watch out for it. So if airline prices have dropped year over year by about 14%, this is the airline industry trying to uh, uh, remake that or finding a new way to, to, to shore up that 14%, and this is to check bag fees? Yeah, well, they've been doing it for the ancillary fee model uh, came out of the ultra-low-cost carriers that did start in Europe, and um, if you've traveled there, uh, you might be familiar with some of those names, like the EasyJets, Ryanair's, Whaling. There's, I mean, there's, there's probably 30 of them. Um, but they, they have this model where you have this low fare that, of course, entices everyone. Oh, look how great that cheap deal is. And then you pay for everything else. In fact, um, if you want to board early, you're paying. If you want seat selection, you're paying. If you want to be... Um, eating on board. And actually, it's the Ryanair CEO. He's a total character. He actually has been known to say, well, eventually, if I could charge people to go to the bathroom, I would. So um, yes, ancillary fees have been around for a long time. They're not going anywhere. You may see them creep up a dollar or two or five. Mm -hmm. um, but it is, if you're going on the base, uh, on a base fare, and say you're going from Vancouver to Calgary, you're just going in and out to visit family. You only need a backpack or a bag that's going to go uh, in the seat in, in front of you, under the seat in front of you or in the overhead bin of carry-on. Um, on many carriers, that's free. It's the extras you pay for. Okay. So in the case of WestJet, it's $5 extra for checked luggage uh, for tra travel booked after February 14th. Uh, and, and there was, a, a, and I guess, an increase of $10 WestJet introduced uh, four months ago for passengers who chose to check their bag with an agent at the airport. That used to be just part That's of... That's right. That used to be part of your base price at one time. Call me old-fashioned. Yeah, no. <laughs> I know. Now, unless you're doing it online, you're paying that extra extra money. Um, so always do it at the time that you're making your booking if you know that you're going to be checking a bag. Um, for those who don't ever, like me, um, this won't affect you. But if the sooner you do it, the better. It's also the same with seat selection and things. Not only do you 
typically get the, the, the most choice and availability, but you also pay the least amount of money. So whenever possible, don't deal with an agent. Yeah. An agent that is with the airline at the airport. So in the what I meant by that. yeah, so in the case of Flair Airlines, I just want to go through what they're they're doing. Last year, uh, I think it was last June, the airline increased the charge to book or change a flight over the phone from fifteen dollars to twenty five dollars, yes. and then when it comes right. uh, to flight change and cancellation fees, uh, the price to change a flight a week or more before departure jump from. 74, uh, sorry, from $29 to $74. 74, that's, that's right. That's a 155% increase. And then now, Flair is also adding a processing fee of 1.4 to 2% when passengers pay by credit card. Yeah, uh, depending on which credit card you use. It's, yeah, they're, they're going to get you. I mean, it's a really, I have to say, Jazz, and I, I understand people are feeling like they're nickels and dime, mm-hmm. but what we don't want is another airline to go to the wayside, to the, the airline graveyard, I call it, um, that I've seen over the past three decades in this industry. You, you'll remember these names, Harmony, like HMY Harmony, Canada 3000, yeah. Royal Airlines, Greyhound, Canjet, Roots, Zip, Zoom. I mean, there's a jillion of them. Um, it's a tough place. And there's, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of factors that would come into play for an airline to fail. We don't want that here in Canada. We want the competition. Um, but it's an expensive place to do business. There's really, really high Canadian airport fees, really stiff competition. You've got these two strong national carriers, Air Canada and WestJet. And if someone goes in and on, onto a route, um, you can bet that one of those two carriers, if they're flying it, will match the low rates that they come out with and knock them out of business if they can. And um, that's competitive marketing here in Canada, and it's what we've seen. And then, of course, we're not Europe having those hopper flights where you can pick a city pair and fly between that maybe is under service. It's a really vast, sparsely populated geography here in Canada. But those three factors alone have caused so many airlines to fail. And I don't want to see that happen. So you can expect good low base fares. Um, which is great news for Canadians. We've got a lot of players still in the game, um, as well as Air Canada and WestJet. We've got um, Sunwing and Transat and uh, Flair, Canada Jetlines and Porter. I mean, there, there's no shortage at the moment compared to what I'd seen, say, a decade or even two decades ago. We just didn't have that. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's good news in some ways. But if you want the extras, you, you, you will have to pay for Pay for it, and you can expect some of the fees to creep up. Now, Claire, you were mentioning, you know, we don't want to lose another airline prior to the um, the break, and we've mentioned a few of them over the last few decades that we have lost. Uh, this week, uh, low-cost airline Linksair uh, ceased operation as of Monday this week. Uh, what do you think, mm-hmm. uh, if anything, what impact do you think that'll have? Well, it's always a mess. Uh, quite frankly, when an airline shuts down with very little notice. And in this case, we have people in destination having to get themselves rebooked at at much higher prices. You know, they may have flown to a destination, you know, for 130 bucks. And the reality is to get themselves home now, it could be double, triple that price. WestJet and Air Canada did come to the table. Um, They offered discounts on routes that were serviced by links to get people home. Air Canada's had to be booked by Monday um, so it has expired. WestJet can, has to be booked by February 29th, which is this Thursday. Um, and it's discounts on the routes that were serviced by links. It's not just across the board. Um, that was to help people needing to get back from destination or 
also for those needing to rebook a trip that they planned on links because some, they were selling into October. So it's, it is a mess um, for anyone who is holding unused tickets. There is a line of attack. Um, you should be calling your credit card company. And that is actually on the Lynx website. There's a whole frequently asked questions. But the nuts and bolts of it, first, call your credit card company. If you have insurance coverage uh, that covers you for a trip cancellation or interruption, start a claim as well. And if you still want to travel and you can't use these, these, uh, um, these tickets that you're now holding, uh, get yourself booked as soon as possible. And that's just going to ensure that you get the best availability and rates. So I, I do feel for... For everyone that is currently holding an unused Lynx ticket, it's um, now going to be expen- more expensive for you to get where you need to go. Um, will there be another Lynx uh, in, the, in the near future? Uh, we have Porter, we have Flair, and I'm not commenting on them specifically, <laughs> yeah. but these airlines that have started recently in the West especially uh, in doing business out here, uh, could we expect more of this uh, in, in the next few years in the near term? Yeah, I, you know, there's always going to be a, someone who wants to try it, and uh, even though it's a really, really tough market, I think that we've seen over the years, I would guess that I've seen probably 20-some airlines kind of come and go and, and, and try and make a play. And, and I think Porter, with their play, they, they're not a new airline by any stretch. For, for those who know it, they had um, aircraft out of Billy Bishop. They were props. And now they've got these Embraer, and they're, they're, they're going right across the, the country now. They're going out of Pearson Airport. They have bases now in Vancouver, Ottawa, Montreal. Like they're just, they are making a much larger play. They've got deeper pockets, um, and they're working with the, the, the travel industry community. So all of their distribution is through all the computer systems that we all use in the travel industry. A, a company like Lynx was not company like Flair is not, they don't like to deal with the travel industry community. So um, I think, yeah, we'll see, we'll see some come and go, some new players. Will they last? You always hold your breath. Uh, now people are planning, you know, their spring and summer holidays. Now there was a notice notification recently from our federal uh, health officer, Teresa Tam about measles shots. Walk me through this a little bit. Yeah, so um, Dr. Teresa Tam, obviously our, our Chief Public Health Officer here in Canada, is suggesting that as we head into spring breaks this season, this season, that she is concerned that the global surge in measles activity combined with the decline in measles vaccine, um, dur- if that all happened during COVID, right? People just said, oh, I don't want another vaccine for my kids. So among these school-aged children here in Canada, what she's worried is, is that when you're traveling, um, there is an increased chance of imported measles cases. So for those who don't know, two doses of the measles vaccine are considered enough for full protection in both adults and kids. So the first dose, um, I know I did, my kids, have, you have it as a baby. So usually between 12 and 15 months, and then again before a child starts school. So any adults who don't know whether they've received two shots, um, they're recommending that you get a booster, especially before traveling. So, they, you know, it's recommended two weeks before you travel, but even within a week, like, it has some protection. So, so it, it's worth doing it if you are concerned. Uh, Claire, as always, thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Jazz.
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.